You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Good morning, church. Happy to see you this Sunday. Um, you can turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. As we dive deeper into this study of being foreigners and exiles in a culture that maybe doesn't recognize us, what that looks like, uh, unpacking this letter that Peter wrote to uh, the early infant church in Asia Minor and these instructions on how we can embody this new life being born again. All right, so let's, let's read together um, what Peter wrote. We're actually going to start in verse 15, although we, we covered that last week. It'll help us launch into verses 17 to 22 that we'll be studying today. So we're in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 15. And here's what it says. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now, now that you have been purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. This is God's word and our text for today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we um, come to you today as your sons and your daughters, redeemed by you, purchased by the blood of Christ. God, I am just humbled by the knowledge of that. And really, God, even overwhelmed by the opportunity to talk about that. God, I feel the weight of this. And uh, I just confess, Lord, um, we need the power of your spirit to hold this. So, Jesus, would you be present here with us today, Father? Would you anoint my lips to speak the words you have for us, your family? God, would you be glorified in this? Would we be encouraged, Lord, by who you are, the object of our faith, and put our hope in you today, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Um, Okay, well, this week in San Francisco, TechCrunch held Disrupt SF, 
2014. How many of you guys were involved with that or attended it or anything? Anybody? A few of you guys? Okay. Disrupt SF. It's a conference that TechCrunch puts on and people from the tech community gather from all over the world. And they begin to look at challenges and opportunities, and they try to look at it from a different angle. They try to disrupt, literally, the way that people think about the normal things we do in life and look for other ways of uh, accomplishing things, uh, of, of overcoming challenges, of thinking about things. And, um, and this conference was created partially uh, by the concept of disruptive innovation, Disruptive innovation. Uh, here's how Clay Christensen, uh, the author and professor, describes disruptive innovation. This is how it works. Disruptive innovation is the selling of a cheaper, poor quality product that initially reaches less profitable customers, but eventually takes over and devours an entire industry. Okay, I want you to think of Steve Jobs and, and Wozniak in their garage, right? And they're building this, this new kind of computer, this Apple computer, and, and, and it, it's cheap, and, and it's, uh, you know, it doesn't work quite the same as the others, but it's prettier, and it's more user-friendly, and uh, it makes small impact, but eventually, now, I mean, with the launch of what Apple did this week, it just kind of takes over the whole world. It just, it, it takes over the entire industry. See, they disrupted something. They had a whole different way of thinking about the industry. And I was just kind of thinking about this um, when I was preparing for, I was watching some of the live stream of, of the event, and it got me thinking, um, wow, Peter wrote this letter <laughs> that just completely disrupted the early church. The, the way they were operating and thinking as they were trying to learn how to live in culture but be set apart from it, uh, how do they do that? Do they hide in a little huddle or do they uh, just live and be the same as everyone around them? And Peter writes this letter and it's just this disruption. It's this whole different way of thinking of being foreigners in exile sent as sojourners into a land. It's completely disruptive. And, and Thinking about the conference and then this letter, it, it highlights two innate human realities. The first is that we like to mimic things. We like to mimic, we like to follow things. We like to have an example, right, to emulate. And, and this is what happens in industry. This is why they have the Disrupt Conference, because everybody starts doing things the same way. Everybody starts thinking about things the same way. And everyone just tinkers a little bit to try to find a little differentiation, but they're all doing the same thing. So it has to be disrupted. And there's, there's a part of us, all of us, that just mimic things, that just follow things, that want to be like other things. The, the second reality is that sometimes a disruption is needed to break up that, that mimicking cycle, that pattern. And so they hold this conference and they think about different ways of doing things. And it changes, hopefully, the industry in really dynamic ways. We love to mimic things. Um, this happens not just in industry, but in our personal life, all right? Uh, when I was in eighth grade, circa 1992, okay? Uh, I'm 37, don't do the math. Uh, don't hurt yourself. Um, 1992, I had just probably binge-watched one too many episodes of Yo! MTV Raps. And, <laughs> and, and at that time, there was this hip-hop group called Crisscross. Cross. Do you guys remember Crisscross? Cross? Come on. 
All right, crisscross. And listen, it was disrupting, okay, my world. It, it was disrupting the way I thought of, like, the way I dressed and, and you know, the way I acted. And, and it was this revolutionary concept. You take the clothes you normally wear and you just turn them around and wear them backwards. And so I remember <laughs> being in my house, uh, eighth grade. Uh, okay, so I'm the oldest of five. Um, uh, three of those are younger brothers. And I'm in my house, and I'm in my, my room, and I, I put the, I get to get the baggiest things I can get, you know, and I put my jeans on backwards, and I'm looking for something like these guys were wearing, but I didn't have a cool jersey. All I had was like a really big hoodie. But when you put a hoodie sweatshirt on backwards, the hoodie's like right here. And so you're just, it's like, Nyeh. And so I have the thing on, and, and I just come walking out of my room, you know, and my little brother Jordan, <laughs> He's, you know, five years younger than me. He just looks at me, he's like, you look like an idiot. <laughs> and I went back into my room and that was it. That was all I could handle. I, that was the most scrutiny I could hold up to. Um, <laughs> never to be worn again. And then crisscross disappeared from, from all of uh, the hip hop world. Um, but listen, this is true in all of us. We love to mimic things, to follow things, especially things that we love or, or things that we think make us more lovable. Right? We, we, we long to, to mimic things that we love or that make us more, more lovable. And sometimes we need a disruption to shake us up. So Peter writes this, this letter to the church in, in the area of, of Asia Minor to disrupt their way of thinking, the, to disrupt the way of being even as followers of Christ in the culture they lived in. Peter gives them this impossible mandate that we talked about last week, uh, he says, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy as I am holy. Holiness, be holy, really? Like I have enough trouble just being polite, just being civil to people. Holiness feels daunting. Last week, uh, Dave Lomas talked about reshaping and thinking um, the way we think about holiness. Um, in a more healthy way, that it's not a rule-abiding exercise. Holiness is not a rule-abiding exercise. It's not an abstinence of, of sin. That's not what holiness is. Not if I stop drinking, if I stop looking at porn, if I stop chasing women, uh, if I stop chasing money, like then if I stop doing all those things, then holiness will just bubble up. That's not the way it works. It's not just an abstinence of sinful things, okay? Instead, it's actually a conforming, it's a reshaping, a fashioning to the right thing, to the good thing, to the best thing, not being conformed or fashioned to our evil desires of the life we once had, but being reshaped and reformed, that we're not to pattern our outward lives after something that doesn't match our inward lives. Because we're born again. We have a new start. We get a refresh. And it's all new. And it's, it's, it's objectified. It, it is directed at something completely new and different. And so, 
We don't want to shape our lives around our old desires or our old loves. And it's true for humanity. We do this all the time. We become what we love, right? We talked about this last week. Dog lovers look like they're dogs. Like this happens, you know? And it's scary because my favorite dog is an English bulldog. And I think secretly my wife is like, that's why we don't have one. Because I see you going in that direction already and I want to just try to curb that as much as I can. We become the things that we love. But it's also true we mimic, okay? Uh, we, we, uh, we follow in uh, the things that we love. Uh, what kind of things do we mimic? I want you to think about it this way. We mimic careers, right? We want to do what other people do. When I, when I read about an author, uh, or, or I read an author and I'm just like blown away by their book, one of the first things I'll do is I'll go try to find their biography. How did you get to that? How did you become this? It's amazing. Maybe I could take that path and get there. Okay, we, we do this with, uh, there's someone in your career field who's kind of set the benchmark, right? And we're all following. You're, you're, you're moving in that direction. You want to mimic their career. We do this with silly things like clothing, i.e. crisscross. Well, we want to wear what other people wear. I want to look like the good-looking people. I want to look like that. Talents. We mimic people's talents. If you don't believe this, uh, you don't even have to go to my house, just here in the church. Take your phone, put on Pandora on the Kelly Clarkson uh, station, and gather my girls around, okay? And, and you will see what it looks like to mimic talents, okay? They will sing, and they will dance, and they will do everything like, like Kelly Clarkson, all right? They, this is just an innate part of us. Why do we do this? Why? Why do we have this? Innate sense to mimic, to follow, to want to be like other people. Because there is in us this desire, this sense that we should be better than what we are. There's this innate understanding in the deepest core of who we are when you're really honest with yourself that says, I should be better than this. I should be doing more than this. I should have more success than this. I should be prettier than this. I should be better than this. And we don't know how to do that. So we look for other people that seem to be doing it better than us and begin to follow. And here's the crazy thing is that, that statement that there's an innate sense in us that believes we should be better than what we are, that's actually true. It's actually true. You are created to be something better. You are created in the likeness of someone better. That is true. Remember, we said last week, holiness, to be like God, love God to be like God. Become holy because he is holy. See, there's a redeemed quality to mimicking people. There's a redeemed essence in it. We were actually created to follow. We were created to mimic something bigger. Genesis tells us we're actually created in the likeness of something better. Genesis chapter one says that God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and give them rule over everything on earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We are created like him. We are by nature creatures who mimic. 
You learn this in parenting very quickly, right? I have three, three daughters, and, uh, and each one of them, as they begin to take shape and form and, and re, you know, respond, first they're just kind of like hams. They're just wrapped up little hams. And you just hold them and look at them, and they just puke and poop, and they don't do much of anything. Sleep, hopefully. Um, but then they, like, there's that day where you smile and they smile back. Uh, or you kind of tickle and they grab your finger. And it starts this whole, like, world of, like, oh, I do something and you do it back. And it's really cool. Until the day <laughs> when I'm walking by my oldest daughter, Grace. Uh, she's playing in her room with blocks or something. And she's stacking them up. She's probably, like, 18 months or something at this point. She spoke really, really early and hasn't stopped since. Um, <laughs> I love you, Gracie. Um, She's playing with something in the room, and I'm just kind of watching from the door, just like she doesn't see me. She's got her back to me, and I'm just like, oh, this is so cute. And everything falls down, and she's like, dang it. Dang it. And I was like, oh, dang it. That's actually me. (laughs) Kids learn this, right? We do this. This is how we learn everything. In life, we're watching other people, we're listening, we're, we're taking characteristics on. We're actually created to do that. God says that. We're created in the likeness of something bigger and better, something perfect. So Peter is telling us uh, to shift. Okay, he's disrupting. He's telling us to shift that mimicry, that following to something completely different, something completely other, something that's, that's holy, He's giving us a holy disruption. He's rattling everything and recentering it. So we should naturally ask ourselves, who is this one? Who is this one that we are created to mimic, to be like, to, to be holy as he's holy? What, who, is, who is this holy one? Who is this God? What are his attributes? Well, I wish I could tell you in the next 25 minutes I would tell you who God is, um, but that would take a lifetime. It will be our lifetime, learning that. But in this passage here, Peter gives us a few characteristics of who God is. He says he is father. He says he is judge. He says he is perfect without blemish or defect. He says he is the object, the substance of our faith. These are just a few things of who God is. Verse 17 tells us, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Now these might be loaded terms for us, father, judge. What do you sense? Just take an inventory for just a moment. When you think of God as Father, what do you sense? What do you experience? What do you think? God as judge, what do you experience? How do you digest that? When you hear the word father, uh, is it connected to, to words of love, compassion, protection? Or is it connected to feelings of abuse, distance, being demanding and overbearing, or maybe being inattentive, 
When you hear that word judge, do you sense things like righteousness, goodness, trustworthiness? Or do you experience feelings that are harsh, legalism, abrasiveness, being critical? These are our personal experiences with these words. And if they invoke a certain reaction in us, it's worth being aware of. But something we have to be careful of as we read this text and all texts in scripture is that we don't insert our interpretation of those words as the modern reader, that we don't change the text to mean or feel something it wasn't meant to. So to give us a, a little help here to bridge the cultural gap, um, I want to read Eugene's Peter, Eugene Peterson's translation uh, from The Message. The Message is a, a translation of the Bible. Eugene Peterson, he's a, a genius uh, professor of ancient languages, and he translated the entire Bible in the form of a letter and letters, the, the way we should have read them if we were in the New Testament receiving these. And he gives it language of today, the way we might hear what they heard, all right? And here's what First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 17 says in the message translation. Remember, in the NIV it says, since, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. That's the NIV. Here's how the original listeners uh, receivers of this letter might have heard this. You call out to God for help, and he helps. He's a good father that way. But don't forget, he's also a responsible father and won't let you get by with sloppy living. A good, responsible father who won't let us get by with sloppy living can I tell you something? In my experience, it's really, really easy to be fun dad. It's really, really hard to be good, responsible dad. When my kids want to not make their beds and to not go to school and to eat pizza and to watch movies and to go to the beach, it's easy to be dad. It is really, really hard to counter all of those things and teach responsibility. <laughs> it's hard to, to battle with your children because you believe there's something better for them beyond the, the season they're living in right now. If they were gonna stay two-year-olds, then it would be a different story, but you're actually preparing them for something bigger, for a whole nother life. And so you're imparting responsibility, and it's painful, and they don't naturally like this. They fight it. It's easy to be fun dad. It is hard to be good, responsible dad. But that is who God the Father is. He is good. He, we call for help and he helps. And he comes to our rescue. But being his children comes with responsibility. This is whom we are following, who we are emulating who we are mimicking, a good, responsible dad. And we as his children should be like that. Peter tells us that 
Some of these experiences that we have, some of these feelings we have toward father or judge, they are tied to our life experiences, our baggage, right? They may be the reason we feel distant from God as father, why we resist him as judge. It can be caused by our past. But Peter also says that our past is a dead hope. Our past is a dead hope, an emptiness of our inherited way of life, verse 18. A life that we've been liberated from. A life that we've been freed from. A new life. God is not like the father you had on earth, good, bad, or indifferent, regardless. He's a completely different kind of father. He's a holy father, perfect. He is not like the judges we have here on earth, whether good, bad, or whatever. He is a completely different kind of judge. He's a holy judge, perfect. See, God is not just love, God is holy love. God is not just power, God is holy power. God is not just wisdom, he is holy wisdom. This is a different scale we're talking about. We tend to think uh, and measure God the way we measure ourselves. Like I could say, my ability to love is like a three, but God's a 10, so I'm gonna shoot for that. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about completely other scale, unmeasurable. And because of God's holiness, his perfection, his complete otherness outside of our uh, understanding, We are to live in what Peter says, reverent fear of God. Reverent fear. Because we know God's character, and because we're living different now, we live in reverent fear of that perfect one. Now this concept may seem odd, right? We're talking a good father, responsible father, but you need to be afraid of him. Let's unpack that for a moment. Reverence and fear are not language that our culture embraces very often. We're not known as people who revere anything and fear very little. But it's worth asking, are there any things in our life, are there any things in us now that we reverently fear? What are the objects of those fears? Listen to this. To reverently fear something means not only that we're afraid of it, that we fear it, but it's also that we honor it. We hold it in a place of esteem. We view it as powerful, more powerful than us. So we're afraid of it. We fear it. What are some of these powerful things that we hold in reverent fear in our life? It's really not that difficult to identify them. Just look back on the things that you center your life around. The same things. If you're mimicking something, right? If if you're chasing after following something to the point of centering your life around it, then there is in that focused devotion and desire a fear of that thing, a reverence of that thing, an honor and power that you give that thing and a desperate fear of losing that thing. 
If it's a relationship, then you put the weight of your soul onto that relationship. That relationship is no longer a place of mutual devotion, of caring for, for one another. Instead, it becomes your salvation, a way to be saved from your loneliness. And if that relationship is threatened, you feel as though you may die. You cannot live without it. You walk in reverent fear of what that relationship can bring you, the power it has, and what you may lose without it. If that thing is a job, a career, then you put the weight of your soul onto that job. That job no longer is a place of learning to grow through opportunities and failures, but it becomes your salvation, a way that you can be saved from your self-doubt, from your past failures, from things spoken over you by your parents, a way of proving yourself. It's your salvation. And if that job is threatened, you feel as though you may die. You have nothing to live for without it. You walk in reverent fear of that job, what it can bring you, what you may lose without it. If that thing is your body, you put the weight of your soul into your appearance, into your beauty, your body no longer exists as a vehicle of being an image bearer of God, but instead it becomes your salvation, a way that you can be saved from self-hatred, from self-loathing, a way you can finally feel beautiful, finally feel lovable. You walk in reverent fear of your body of what it can bring you and what you may lose if something happens to it. So reverent fear is not a foreign concept to us. We live in reverent fear of all of our loves outside of God. We live in reverent fear of all of them. We are just as obsessed with these things as Gollum in The Lord of the Rings <laughs> and his precious. And if you know anyone who does a really good precious, have them do it for you at lunch, just so you can get the weight of it. Like, it's just creepy. It should bring fear. We worship, just as Gollum worshiped the precious, we worship these things. We sense we may die without these things. And when they're threatened, listen, when, how do you know if this thing, if you really fear it? When it is threatened, you become undone. Your fear hits a fever pitch. Your anxiety goes through the roof. So I want you to imagine for a moment, what is this thing in your life that you fear losing the most? What is it that you would rather die with than live without it? In that object, whatever you identify, both your reverent fear and your deepest desires reside in that thing. And what God, by his grace and his love as a responsible father, what he is directing us through Peter to do is to reorient, okay, to, to change direction, that fear, that reverence, 
off of other things and direct them at him, at the Holy One, the perfect one, the only one worthy of our fear, worthy of our reverence. Peter is implying that because we have become children of God, of that good, responsible Father, and we are born again into a new life, we now not only live a new life, but we have a new responsibility, obedience to that good Father. We become holy because we love God as his children. We take on his character and his attributes because we're his sons and daughters. The same way grace learned from me, good, bad, and whatever, we, we learn, we study him, we pray, we gather around him, we center our hearts on him, and we begin to take on who he is. When God says that we are to be holy because he's holy, it can crush us. We can be crushed under that expectation, and we will as long as we attempt to live that out in our own ability, our own strength, our own measure. Instead, we should follow the way of God's example for us in Jesus. What does it mean to live in the likeness of God? It means to follow the one worthy example we have, Christ on earth. Jesus always said, what I do, I do because the Father tells me. What I say, if you hear it from me, you, you've heard it from the Father. There was this interconnectedness between Christ and God the Father. Not my will, but, but your will, Father, be done. Christ is the embodiment of the Father. And now, as we become his sons and daughters, as we become born into a new life, Purchased not by silver or gold, not cheap things, but at a great cost, the blood of Christ. We follow that example. So your coworkers should experience God the Father through you, his sons and daughters, living for Jesus. Your neighbors should experience God the Father through you, his sons and daughters, living for Jesus. God is disrupting the things we mimic He's reorienting them on Christ. And we do that by shifting those desires, those centerpieces, those objects, shifting those onto God in the manifestation of Christ. Secondly, we reorient our life to God by shedding the old way of life. Not just our old desires and habits, but actually what Peter calls our inherited way of life, an empty inherited way of life. He says, you have been redeemed. You have been delivered. You have been liberated from the emptiness of your inherited way of life. Listen to that, the emptiness of your inherited way of life. You inherited a lot of things. We wish it was money, uh, but there are a lot of things we inherit, right? Uh, maybe you inherited your... Uh, Family's your dad's sense of humor. Maybe you inherited your aunt's cooking skills. Maybe you inherited your grandpa's nose. Uh, I don't know. You, we all inherit something. We inherit lots of things. We don't necessarily get to choose those things. 
It gets passed down to you. I've told you guys about my family and my history, all kinds of mess, alcoholism inherited, okay? Inherited violent temper, right? Receding hairline. Like there's, I inherited lots of stuff, good, bad, and ugly. Peter says, though, this is beyond just your family. We hear inheritance, we think just family. Peter says it's beyond that. It's actually inheriting a whole way of life. We had this really, um, we had our leaders, our our volunteer leaders, community group leaders, coaches down uh, in Santa Cruz for the leadership retreat last weekend, which was was great. And we did this exercise where we said, let's identify some of the idols, some of the things that that we can can say in our community, in me, in our community, in our neighborhood, in our district, these are the things that get exalted. These are the things that are like, that's what you live for. It was so unique. It was different across the whole city. In the marina, it was status and income and position. In the mission, it was good food and partying. Like, where's the party at? In the Richmond, it was seclusion. Just pretend like we're not here. Like, we're, leave us alone. In every district, in every person in that district, listen, there are loves that have to be disrupted. There are value systems that have to be disrupted. There are desires that have to be disrupted. And once they're disrupted, they have to be reoriented. This is what Peter's talking about. There's an emptiness in the inherited way we receive to live. Maybe your family, uh, maybe the community you grew up in, maybe the church you grew up in. There's an inherited way of doing things that can be empty. And Peter's saying, You've been liberated from that. Christ set you free from that. That isn't your inheritance anymore. You get a new inheritance. One that won't fade. One that won't perish. So here, church, I want you to hear this. The message that Peter is giving in this letter to the church, he's saying, be who you are, not who you were, because you belong to someone better. Be who you are, not who you were, because you belong to someone better. You have a new inheritance, a new father, a new life, born again. And when we do this, Peter uh, tells us that we should see a contrast. We should see a contrast from the old and the new, right? And since we've been purified, we are to love one another with a deep and radical love. And, and this is my, my closing thought, and I wanna, I wanna talk to you about it as your community pastor, okay? Because this is where my heart resides in this church. I love this city. I love the, the, the difference that happens in every um, district, the, the different kind of neighborhood, the different kind of people, the different makeup. It is so beautiful. It is so unique, And God is saying, I have liberated every object of desire in every one of those. I've liberated my people from that. And when we're liberated, you guys, if I can just step out and stop talking, just like theology for a moment, just talk to you from from the heart. When you experience a liberation from something, you can't live that same way anymore. You step into something new. And church, if we would be able to actually embody all of this stuff we're talking about, 
We would begin to take on the attributes of who God is uh, through Christ as we've been redeemed. What would that look like in your neighborhood, in your apartment building, in your community group? Peter says it's marked by this, this radical, deep love for one another. Listen to, to the way I want to just share it from Eugene Peterson again, because he, he makes it in language that maybe hits home a little better. He says, now that you've been cleaned up of your, from your lives by following the truth, love one another as if your lives depended on it. When is the last time you loved someone like that? As if your life depended on it. What would our community, what would our neighborhoods look like if we loved each other in this deep forming way as if our lives depended on it, that we need each other, that we actually are family. As much as we mess up and hurt each other and disappoint each other, that we're in this together. That God has actually brought you to this city for this season, for this move of God that's happening, and you need me, <laughs> and I need you to do this. And we have this deep abiding love for one another. It changes the way you make decisions. It changes the way uh, you, you see the city. It's not convenient to live here. <laughs> it's not convenient to raise kids here. But if God is in it and I'm called to God as my father, then I'm in. And I'm in with you. We do this together and I need your help. And I know you need me. So can we drop some of the posturing and the independence that we carry around? Can we kind of let that stuff just fall in the dumpster? And actually like live in this radical community. Here's a picture of what that might look like. Uh, Howard Snyder wrote this uh, in his book. He said, the church today suffers from a fellowship crisis. In a world of big imperial institutions, the church often looks like just another big impersonal institution. One seldom finds within this institutionalized church today that winsome intimacy among people where masks drop, honesty prevails, that sense of communication and community beyond human abounds where there is literally the fellowship of and in the Holy Spirit. Guys, this is my heart's longing for us, for our church, our community. Whether you're here for the first time or whether you've been here from, from day one, if God calls you into this thing, this is my desire for us. When is the last time you experienced this? When's the last time you demonstrated this? Being a safe place where masks fall off, where honesty prevails. It's hard to do this on our own, you guys. We can't. We can try for a little while. It's got to be the power of the Holy Spirit in us. 
It's got to be a good, responsible father who is shepherding us. And we allow ourselves to be shepherded. That's a good thing to follow. That's a good thing to mimic. Let's pray. Father, I want that word to mean something more than what it's meant, Father. God, I have this sense in my spirit now that there are many of us who have resisted you, who have distanced ourselves from you. Because, God, we have a sense that we're not good enough, that your expectations are too high of us, that we can't do this on our own. God, I pray we'd actually surrender to all those things because they're true. We're not good enough. Your expectations of, of me and my flesh, Lord God, are impossible. It's only by your spirit. God, I pray we would lose this striving of independence, God, that we want outside of you. God, that we would get lost in a love for you, an identity found in being your sons and your daughters, Lord, that you absolutely delight in. Father, that you dance and you sing over us this song of acceptance, Lord, that we are, are your beloved ones, God, that you died for, and it wasn't a cheap death. May the truth of all of that would break the chains that have bound us to an empty way of living, God, for so long. And free us, liberate us, God, in our spirit to move closer to you, Jesus.